Well, elections have consequences. A good day. <laughs> Don't you wish. Elections have consequences. That is something that we are hearing with frequency these days. The truth is, all choices have consequences. Some even have life or death consequences. Some have eternal consequences. Would you believe it if I told you today you have an opportunity to make a choice that has eternal ramifications for you? Those are the sorts of choices that we find in our text this morning in Exodus chapter 32. We pick up the story halfway through where the people have broken loose. Now I realize not all of you have been following along as we at United Baptists have made our way through the book of Exodus. But in Exodus chapter 32, in the beginning of the chapter, God has an audience with Moses on the mountain. And on the mountain, Moses is with God getting his rules for worship and the instructions for how to build a tabernacle. And while Moses is up there on that mountain talking with God, the people of Israel that he left behind are underneath, down below. They begin to get a little fidgety. They get frustrated. They get impatient. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. We want you to make some gods for us. And Aaron says, okay, give me your jewelry. He takes the jewelry from all the people, and he throws it in a fire, he takes a tool, and he shapes it. Out comes an idol in the image of a golden calf or golden bull. While this is going on, God looks down, and he says to Moses, you probably ought to get down there. Your people are out of hand. They're acting out. And that's where we pick it up this morning. Where the people have broken loose. The King James Version says that the people were naked. And it says so because the Hebrew uh, term speaks to loosening or uncovering. So we might here uh, truly have a, an observation of a group of people who are committing sexual sin with one another. Some sort of orgy-like thing going on. Or we may also just have a, a description, a figurative description of, of, of a people whose morality has quickly come undone. That they are being loose with their morals. They have broken loose, Moses observes, and he adds, and Aaron had let them break loose. So Israel has sinned, and Aaron is accountable. Now why is Aaron held accountable? Because Aaron was left in charge. And a spiritual leader has a responsibility to maintain good discipline, which seems like a pretty high bar. And you might be wondering, how could one man possibly do that for all those people? And you know what? We don't get that answer from this text. We don't get that picture from this text. What we get from this text is the picture of how one man didn't maintain good discipline among the flock, and allowed his people to break loose. And he did that by, one, not speaking up. And two, by acting like what God said was wrong was right. And three, by actually facilitating the sin of the people. So if you are a leader today, or if you are a potential leader, here is an example in Aaron of what not to 
do. Because the result of Aaron's poor leadership was anarchy. The national rebellion. And so great was this slide off the rails of the people of God that in just a short period of time, they had become an object of mockery, an object of derision, okay? The NIV says they were a laughingstock, I think. The message says that they were disgracing themselves before their enemies. And the point is this, how tragic and ironic, that the people God saved to bring him glory have so quickly brought him shame. And that is what happens, beloved, when we who profess to be Christians fail to live godly lives. Is it not? We don't pay the only price for living in an unholy way. The whole lot of, un, of, of believers is implicated when we mess up. Because, and you know this, non-believers are always watching. Skeptics are always looking into our lives and then judging God and judging His church based on what they see in us. Solomon wrote, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Not the perfume that's bad, it's the dead flies in it that make it stink. It's not God who is wrong when his people disobey, but it is God and his church who get put in the stand, right, with every public indiscretion. And so a little folly among the people overshadows, carries more weight, has more influence than their wisdom, even their years of wisdom and honor. Think about this. A little lapse in judgment, flying just a little too close to the flame. One impetuous, bad choice. Your reputation, and along with it, the reputation of God, his church, is tarnished. The people of Israel have broken loose because Aaron allowed them to break loose. And now Moses steps in because something has to be done. And he gives the people a choice. Verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who's on the Lord's side? Moses asked. Who, whose side are you on? Who do you want to live for? Who do you intend to follow? The choice was theirs in that moment, just as the choice is ours. Because God does not coerce anyone into giving themselves to him, does he? If you're going to give yourself to the Lord, if you're going to give your life to the Lord, he intends for you to do that willingly. He wants you to do that freely. It's just like the offering that he commanded be taken up to build the tabernacle. That it should be given by those, only those, whose hearts prompted them to give. God knows, as we know, that all service that is not free, that is not voluntary, is only deceit and hypocrisy. So the people must choose. In a little while, Moses' successor is going to issue a similar and Equally, if not a more well-known challenge to Israel, Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 15 says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. 
In other words, if you don't want to serve the Lord, that's up to you. You can make up your mind to do that. If you don't want to serve the Lord, Joshua says, you can stay with your false gods. So be it. But choose. Choose. Some people are good at choosing. Some people are lousy at choosing. Right? My wife and I are both really bad at choosing when it comes to going out to dinner. Where do you want to go? I don't know where you want to go. I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Let's go there. Well, I was thinking here. Okay, we're going to fight. <laughs> if someone doesn't choose. Some people are good at choosing and some people are not good at choosing. But however you are disposed at making decisions, we all have to make choices in life, don't we? Choices that move us necessarily in one way and also take us away from other ways. In other words, we, when we choose, can't go right and left at the same time. Critical junctures remind us of this. Crossroads make it obvious. For the soon-to-be college student, choosing one university means saying no to the others. For the newlywed, choosing one mate means forsaking all others. For the recently enlisted man or woman, choosing the military life means forfeiting a degree of personal freedom in order to defend the freedom of a nation. Choosing one thing leads to not choosing other things, and life is full of choices to be made. And there is no more important, no more far-reaching, no more consequential choice for every living, breathing human being than the one Moses posed to Israel, who will you serve? Will you devote yourself to God or something or someone else? Because it can't be both. Jesus said that, right? We know that from Jesus. We cannot have two masters. We must choose. And we can't just put off choosing as if that were a choice. Because Jesus says, whoever is not for me is against me. And what that means is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. There's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. There is no straddling the fence when it comes to a relationship with God. We are either in or we are out. Bless you. Again. So Moses calls out to the rebels. Did you hear me? Moses calls out to the rebels. Whoever is on the Lord's side. And from his vantage point, it doesn't look like anybody's on. But whoever out there might be on the Lord's side, let him come to me. Mind you, beloved, this invitation is offered to the ones who have gone astray. It is offered to the ones who have made a grievous error. The ones who have just forsaken a blood covenant, broken it to pieces. Moses issues this call to those ones who have willingly left the path of obedience and done what was dastardly and wrong. This is who he invites, come to me. And what does that tell us? That tells us this is good news. 
Sometimes we feel like or can feel like our sin disqualifies us from a relationship with God. Sometimes we can feel like we have messed up so bad or we have gone so far that God would certainly want nothing to do with us at all. But I want to tell you this morning, God does not just write you off when you fail him. As a hymn writer put it, come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And his door is open. Could you desire to return home and get back to his side where you belong? Leave your sin behind is what Moses is saying. It's called repentance. To repent is just a turn and to go in a different direction. Stop doing those wrong things. Start doing these right things. Repent. The first message that Jesus ever preached, Mark, at least the recorded one that we have, Mark 1 verse 15. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe that you can be forgiven of your sins. Repent. That's how Jesus preached and Moses preaches similarly. Inviting the people back to God's side to turn from their sinful ways and to join him following God. And verse 26 tells us that the Levites rallied around Moses. The Levites, they're people from the tribe of Levi, right? The ones who are bound eventually to form the priesthood for Israel. They come around Moses and what happens next is violent, grisly. It's hard to comprehend. It's the thing that most preachers would skip if they weren't preaching through a book. Felt obligated to make sure we visit it so we don't just take a wide berth around all the hard stuff. He gives a command to the Levites, and he says to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword, put on your sword, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother his companion and his neighbor. So no sooner had the Levites declared their allegiance to the Lord that they are put to work in the service of the Lord. And so we have to catch this, okay? Choosing the Lord's side obligates one to serve the Lord. Choosing the Lord's side obligates one to serve the Lord. That's what it means to have a Lord. That's what it means to have a king. To be on the Lord's side is to do as the Lord says. It's not like registering to vote where you can go in there and, and check Republican or Democrat and then still reserve the right when you get behind the curtain to vote for whatever party you prefer in the moment. To be on the Lord's side is to do the Lord's work. It is to obey the Lord's command. And that's what the Levites have signed up for, though we might imagine they didn't expect it to look like that right out of the gate. They have been commanded by God to literally execute his judgment on the sin of Israel. A lot of us will struggle with that scenario. And if we do, commentator Phil Reich can suggest it's because we do not understand what a wicked thing it is to worship other gods. And I would say that that is probably true, don't you think? That these people didn't kill anyone. They didn't commit some of the sins that you or I would, would rate in the 
top ten uh, or any deserving of death. Yes, what they did wasn't right. It was wrong, in fact. But, but was it so wrong that they should pay for it with their lives? And the answer is yes. Yes. Because the wages of sin and always has been since the Garden of Eden. These people had just made a blood covenant with God. They had just pledged, they had just pledged to obey him in everything in about a month's time. They had broken it in a most egregious way, in a most insulting way. They deserved to die for their disobedience because they had broken the covenant. All who sinned deserved to die for disobedience. But what's remarkable is that all of them deserve death, and yet only 3,000 of them died. And I'm not suggesting that 3,000 is an insignificant number. But in perspective, it's about one half of 1% of the adult male population of Israel at the time. And what that tells us is that even in judgment, even in judgment, God is merciful. And he spared far, far more people than deserve to be spared. The psalmist asks us, Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? God, if you held our wrongs against us, who could stand? And the answer is no one. That we all deserve death for our sins. 3,000 of those guys received their judgment immediately. Now, God could have done this a different way. When we read the Bible and we see something like this, we should ask those sorts of questions. Why is it this way? God could have done this a different way. He could have done it himself. He could have taken care of 3,000 people. No problem. Done it in the past. Remember those plagues? Remember, remember the Red Sea coming in over Egyptian soldiers? Done it in the past. He'll do it in the future. We've read ahead. We know he'll do it in the future. But here he chooses not to. He uses the Levites to demonstrate the radical nature of consecration. He uses the Levites to show us what it means to belong to the Lord, what it means to give, to truly give God our whole allegiance. <clears throat> Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you, the, at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The NIV puts it slightly differently, but the gist is the same. You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. You did the hard thing. You stood up against your own family members. You've been blessed this day. If that sounds familiar, it should. Because it's the standard Jesus expects of his disciples. Not that every believer must be against his own flesh and blood like as a matter of principle, okay? Jesus is not espousing that kind of random or arbitrary hate or discord. But that every believer in matters of faith and holiness, where our choice is to obey or defend the will and word of God or to obey and defend the, the sinful actions of our family members, that we would, as his children, hold fast to him. Where do you get that, Scott? Matthew 10, 37. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Who put those human relationships over this relationship? Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Now, this is a point, I realize it, this is an off-ramp. This is right where people get to, to thinking about Christianity. They read something like that. Now, I'm not doing that. You might be more inclined to do it if you knew how wonderful God was. You might be inclined to do it if you knew that he's not telling you to love your family less, but to love him more. The love we have for our family must not be greater. It must not take precedence over. It must not cause us to compromise the love that we have for God. And the Levites proved their loyalty to God by their willingness to follow a difficult, almost incomprehensible, really, command which defended the holiness of God. And that's going to be their role, by the way, eventually, as priests for the nation of Israel. They will be guarding God's holiness. This all ties in. Now, just a word, I feel like I should throw in a disclaimer here. I don't want you to panic if you're hearing this kind of stuff for the first time in your life. Lord help you if this is the first time you've ever come to church, and the first thing you hear out of Exodus is these crazy people strapped on swords and started killing people, and the pastor said that if I want to follow God, I have to do that too, which would be the condensed version of a message that I never said. You, if you're contemplating following God and you fear that you, you have to strap on a sword to answer his call, I want to tell you from the scripture that we live in a different age. And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare today are not the weapons of this world. Okay, so that's all you really need to know is that, okay, phew, I don't have to kill anyone. No, you don't. The, the sword that we get to wield today in the church is, is, is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. That's the only offensive weapon that we are given and authorized to use in our spiritual battle. The Word of God. That's what we use. Not the literal sword, but the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's what we use to decide what is right and what is wrong. That is, that is what we use to divide between what is holy and what is unholy as believers. That's the sword that you'll have to wield as a believer. And no, you will not be asked to sit in a, in a position of great judgment. The only, the only judgment the church has authority over is that of church discipline. Church discipline, which is designed to bring people, not to kill people, but to heal people. Even its most radical element, excommunication, removing someone from membership, is intended to cause in that person... Such a disruption, such disequilibrium, such dissatisfaction that they would miss the family of God and they would miss the things of God and they would repent and they would come back. So even church discipline in its most radical form is designed to heal and restore and bring someone back to God's side. So you can come to God's side. You can come to God's side not having to worry uh, about a physical battle. It's the spiritual battle that you'll be involved in. You won't be taking up that sword that the Levites took up in the wilderness, but God did use them. He used them to dispense his judgment and to make his point to everyone that sin, that is not doing what we ought to do or, 
or doing what we shouldn't do according to God's word that sin is serious business. And I'm not sure how else to say it because I think when I say that so much, that sin is serious, I think I sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. Yes, okay, we've heard that, Pastor. How do you say this? Living in opposition to God is deadly. Living in opposition to God is... catch up to you. You can't do it. Failing to believe what God says is a fatal mistake. We see that here, but we could say, well, hey, look, at least the punishment only landed on 3,000 of them. That's not too bad. The other 99.5% seem to got away with a warning. But that is not what is true at all. We're going to read it here in a little bit, another week or so, Exodus 34, verse 7, about God. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Sin will be paid for. So just as we had noted earlier that Israel had sinned and Aaron was accountable, now we see that Israel had sinned and every Israelite is accountable. We are all accountable for the sins that we commit. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So when Moses says that he's going to go up to try to make atonement for Israel's sin, he means he's going to go try to find a way to expiate this. He's going to go try to find a way with God to cleanse this stain of, of Israel's sin. He's going to go to God and he's going to see if he can figure out how to appease God for Israel's wrongdoing. So up to God he goes, confesses the sin to God. No sugarcoating here, no excuses. Not just a sin. Moses says it's a great sin. That's in there twice. It's a great sin. And then he spells out the sin so that there's no mistake about what he's coming to make amends for. The people have made themselves gods of gold. Meaningful confession is specific. This isn't just a term or an idea for theologians. This is something you teach your children. This is something you can exercise in your marriage. This is something you can put into, into uh, practice at your workplace. A meaningful confession is specific. It names the sin. It is, not, it is so much more than I'm sorry. We're so quick to say I'm sorry as if that, if that settles it. But sometimes, isn't it true? Sometimes when we say we're sorry, that what we're really sorry about is that this is driving you batty. I'm sorry you're upset. <laughs> not a problem for me. So much more than saying, as we have seen on the political landscape, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. What does that even mean? Who's responsible? When we seek forgiveness from God or when we seek forgiveness for others, we must be specific about what we're seeking forgiveness for. We should acknowledge the specific debt that our specific bad behavior has incurred. We should be clear expressing that we know what we have done and why it was wrong. Moses models this kind of confession to God. 
By the way, just in case you don't know or haven't thought about it, when we confess to God, we are not informing him of anything. Oh, Lord, I know this probably slipped by you, but the other day, when we confess to the Lord, we are not informing him of anything. We are simply then agreeing with him about what he says, about what we have done. So Moses goes to God to confess Moses is a remarkable leader. I hope this is not lost on you one bit. He's the kind of pastor every church should want. Because he goes to bat for his people. Because he loves his people. We noted last week how fast and how quickly they moved on from him. They were willing to throw him over. He's been gone for about a month or so. As of this Moses, that guy, we don't even know where he is. We're ready to move on. Get us some new gods. We need some new leaders. Look how quick Israel is to move on from Moses, but Moses is not quick to move on from Israel. And God was willing there for a little bit, or at least we might read that, go a little deeper and see it perhaps a test of Moses' leadership, but still it reads that way, that God was willing to blot out Israel and start again. I'm just going to visit my fury on them and that will be that. And Moses, why don't you and I start over again? And some pastors, I think, would take him up on that offer. You're right, God. Kill all my sheep. They're just stupid people. They're nowhere near as smart as I am. You and I should start again. We could do so much better than what we've got. He's not that way. I hope there aren't too many pastors that are that way. But, but you see it. It's not about Moses. It's not about his glory. He just loves those Israelites. And he so desperately wants to lead them into the promises of God that he won't let go of them. He goes to God and he asks God to forgive them, but then he offers a great twist. He says, forgive them, Lord, but if you won't, then blot me out of the book you have written. What Moses is suggesting here is substitution. Forgive them. But if you won't forgive them, then take out your wrath your just wrath towards them, take that out on me. Let your anger come to me. God, if you won't forgive them, let me pay the price for their sin with my own life. Moses is prepared to die if Israel could be saved. So I have penciled in the margin of my Bible near this passage, again, just from the studying previous to, to getting ready to preach this sermon series, in the margin right here by this part of the text, the good shepherd lays down his life for his Those are the words of Jesus, right? From John's Gospel, John chapter 10, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. And that is what Moses is willing to do. And Moses here then is a type of Christ. He is a willing substitute who foreshadows the only true substitute, Jesus. Jesus who would indeed die in the place and as the only hope of ruined sinners. Paying a penalty for their sins by forfeiting his perfect life on the cross. You are here today and you wonder, what is this cross all about? That's what it's about. This is not a good teacher from an ancient time who had a bad run-in with a foreign government that got him killed. This is the sinless Son of God who willingly went to the cross of Roman crucifixion to bear in his body 
the penalty of the sins of the world. So that all who would believe on him would be saved and have everlasting life. Now the offer Moses makes is a generous one. If a price has to be paid, God, let me pay it. My life instead of theirs. The offer, uh, the offer I think we would agree, is far better than the people deserved. But God turned it down. You see, Moses couldn't pay for the sins of the people because he himself was a sinful man. And if he's going to atone for Israel's sins, he's going to have to be perfect. An imperfect man can't atone for the sins of imperfect people because the imperfect man has already incurred the just consequence of death for his own sin. His death, Moses' death, would only be the death that he deserved, not a substitute for what others have done. The only acceptable substitute for the sins of humanity against God would have to be a perfect, sinless. And that, of course, is Jesus. Holy God, holy man. The Son of God, conceived in a woman by the Holy Spirit, born into this world, living among us, preaching the good news of the forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation to God, never once sinning in his 33 years of earthly life, never deserving death, God turned down the offer Moses made to be a substitute for his people. Moses wasn't qualified. But he accepted the offer Jesus made to be a substitute for his people because Jesus was. And that's why he died on the cross, to be the substitute for our sins. He was killed there. He died. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose from the dead because he was an acceptable and an accepted offering for the sins of men to God the Father. And because he has overcome death and lives eternally, so shall all those who put their trust in him. So shall all live eternally who are on God's side. So friend, whose side are you on? You can make a choice today that has eternal implications. One way, or another. Whose side are you on? There are only two. I know life seems so complicated, but there's only two. And if you're here today and you say, well, I'm not sure what side I'm on, I can tell you what side you're on. Because you know when you're on the Lord's side. You know when you're on the Lord's side. Jesus calls to all Jesus calls to you the way Moses called to the Israelites. Whoever is on the Lord's side. Not whoever's perfect, not whoever's got it all together. Whoever's on the Lord's side. Not whoever's followed all the rules and never made a mistake. Whoever wants to be on the Lord's side. We could even simplify it further before we close. Come and live. Stay and die. All choices have consequences. Some have life and death consequences. Some have 
eternal consequence. So, how have you chosen? Whose side are you? Our concluding hymn this morning is number 600.